In this time of worship today, Lord, I pray that you will speak to every heart, including mine, and open our eyes that we might behold Jesus Christ in all his resurrected glory and in all his wonderful compassion. And all God's people said, amen. There was a golfer who was very discouraged with his game. He was playing rather poorly. Couldn't putt, couldn't drive. And after one particularly poor tee shot, he got very angry. And so he took his golf bag filled with his golf clubs and threw them into the water hazard right off the tee. Storms off the course and his buddies are standing there aghast. But in a few moments he comes back and his friends are thinking finally he's come to his senses. He wades into the water, retrieves his golf bag, opens up the side pocket, pulls out his car keys and then throws the clubs back into the water and storms away. I have never thrown my bag into the water. I have thrown a club. And it went further than my drive. <laughs> you know, we do some very foolish things when we get discouraged. It was the great Bible teacher and author John Stott who said the Christian's chief occupational hazards are two, depression and discouragement. We pray and there is no answer. We battle with habits that have plagued us for decades. There's no victory. The world in many ways seems worse now than it ever was. And we've been praying. Expectations for our family are not realized. Maybe you lose a job and that creates financial hardship. You experience a broken relationship which leaves deep emotional scars. Or maybe you lose a loved one and you just can't get over the deep pain. We are, many of us, who name the name of Christ, depressed and discouraged people. We find our hearts sometimes overwhelmed, overwhelmed by defeat, dominated by this spirit of depression, and it seems as though we're willing to give up all of the time. Now, it may not make you feel any better, but that's exactly how the disciples felt that very first Easter Sunday. The portion of scripture that Keith read a moment ago from Luke 24 says, very early in the morning, after the women came back from the tomb and said that it was empty, the disciples said, this is nonsense, because they were convinced that Jesus was dead. It was in the afternoon when some disciples were walking uh, to Emmaus or on the road to Emmaus from Jerusalem and they were very discouraged and as they stopped they ran into a visitor not knowing who he was and he said why do you walk along and are sad and then they began to recount the crucifixion of Jesus Christ because that's all they believed in many people believe that Jesus lived most of those who believe that Jesus lived believe that Jesus died. 
but very few take to heart the reality that he lives today. So in the morning and in the afternoon and in the evening of that very first Easter Sunday, the disciples were amazingly discouraged. We read in John's Gospel, chapter 20, that they were huddled together behind locked doors for fear of the Jews, like rabbits on the first day of hunting season. They were convinced that they were going to be next. Well, I tell you, if you are a discouraged Christian, you are in a very familiar tribe. But then Easter happened. It's interesting to me that our misunderstanding of life causes great heartbreak. We have the unique ability to hear one story and understand another one. To hear the story of the resurrection and soon forget about it in light of the difficulties all around us. So what I want for us to do this morning is to look at the word of God from the Gospel of Matthew. That's the very first book of the New Testament. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that give to us the writings of the New Testament. And I want to look at the very first one in the very last chapter, Matthew 28. After the Sabbath, and that was Saturday, Jesus was crucified on Friday, we call it Good Friday, and then you have the silent Sabbath where everyone was resting and no work was going on and nothing is recorded, well, maybe Jesus was doing some work behind the scenes, as the scripture indicates. But after the Sabbath, at the dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. And I can't read that without thinking in my mind, with attitude. <laughs> so there. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like Dead men, either insensitive and unable to speak or falling down as though they were dead. And the angel said to the women, don't be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. And I love this, verse six. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. We need to give credit to these women who were the ones who hung out at the crucifixion and brought together the spices and came that early Monday morning or Sunday morning to see the Savior. They were convinced he was dead. They were mourning his death. And as they came at early dawn, their goal was simply to prepare the body, which they did not have time to do after the crucifixion, because of the Sabbath. They were frightened by an earthquake. They were mourning a death of a loved one. They were terrified by an angel who was shining like the sun. And they were alarmed by the empty tomb, we're told in Mark 16. That's the word that is used, alarmed by the empty tomb. Think about that for a moment. 
The empty tomb upset them. When actually an occupied tomb should have terrified them. Some things bother us that are really designed by God to bless us. And it's only because we can't see past the physical. And we don't believe the God who is invisible. Some of your empty tombs, think about it, are really blessings not yet explained. You're mourning this, you're mourning that. And as you view the scene, you are under depression and you're ready to give up. But what you don't know is that that situation is prime for God to do something really amazing. Now I confess to you it's great and easy to have this attitude after the fact when God comes in and blesses and you look back and say, oh, now I see. But in the midst of the storm, it's hard to realize a calm day. You know, tombs are curious things, aren't they? Uh, People are attracted to the tombs of famous people. Have you been to the tomb of Abraham Lincoln in Springfield, Illinois? That's a pretty cool place. Uh, I had a chance once to go to Lenin's tomb in Russia at Red Square. Didn't get to see him, he was taking the day off. They didn't let us in, but I'm told he looks better now than he did when he was alive. I did get to see the tomb of King Philip of Macedonia, who is the father of Alexander the Great. And that tomb had never been robbed, and it was in its pristine glory. Fascinating, these places, because they're the tombs of famous people, and because those famous people are still there. But the fascination about the tomb of Jesus Christ is the fact that it is empty, and he is not there. I mean, that's what's so glorious. He is gone. Notice verse six. The reality is he is not here. The reason is he has risen. Risen indeed. Absolutely. Truly. It's not just in our imagination. It's not just a spiritual resurrection. It is a real resurrection of flesh and bones. And what's more, Jesus told us this was going to happen. He took his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi in the north of Israel, and they sat down. He said, who do you think, who do people say that I am? And they came up with the obvious answers. You're John the Baptist. You're Elijah. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, right on. That's it. And then he said, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and be mistreated by the religious leaders to be apprehended and abused. And then he will be executed. And then three days later, he will rise from the dead. Now that was news to the disciples. And by the way, human beings, as I said, have the ability to listen to one story and interpret another. I don't know what he's talking about. He repeated it three times in the Gospels. 
But a fourth time, if you count John chapter 2, when he was in the temple and he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. Everyone thought he was talking about Herod's temple. He was standing in it, but he was talking about the temple of his body, and the disciples didn't get it until after the resurrection. And you've also got uh, Psalm 16, where it says, you will not leave your anointed one, your holy one, in the grave. His body will not see corruption. And you've got all of that evidence, and they still didn't get it. And we're much like those disciples. We hear, but we don't get it. I also love in verse six that it says he is not here, that's the reality, because he is risen, that's the reason, just as he said, repeatedly, fulfilling the Old Testament scripture, which they knew by heart. I like what Wilbur Smith says. Not Will Smith, but Wilbur Smith. If our Lord said frequently with great certainty and detail that after he went up to Jerusalem he would be put to death, but on the third day he would rise again from the grave, and this prediction came to pass, well then it has always seemed to me that everything else our Lord said must be true. And I say amen to that. If you can pull off rising from the dead, you have earned my ear. You're worthy to be heard. The famous French infidel Voltaire once mocked, Christianity is built on an empty tomb, to which I say, amen. He didn't get it. Thank you for putting it so eloquently. And so here's the first reason to be encouraged, the vacant tomb. But there's a second reason. Look at verse 7. The angel said to the women, go quickly and tell his disciples, he's risen from the dead and he's going ahead of you into Galilee and there you will see him. Now I've told you. First the angel said, come and see the empty tomb and then he said, go and tell. Now I've told you. So the woman hurried away from the tomb. They were afraid yet filled with joy and ran to tell his disciples. And then suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And they came to him and clasped his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to the women, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So the angel said in verse seven, you will see him there. The disciples, you will see him there. And Jesus said, they will see me there. And in between, the women saw him first. Here's the second reason to be encouraged. Not just the vacant tomb, but the visible Christ. You see, no one was an eyewitness to the resurrection. No one saw the actual event, but many people saw the risen Christ. So many people that you cannot just chalk it up to some kind of hallucination. 
or, or some plan that was put together by the disciples hoping to deceive the whole world. That would never happen. Now the scripture records at least 11 appearances of Christ to many people. First of all, the women at the tomb. Secondly, and personally, to Mary Magdalene. We read about that in John. Later in the afternoon, it was Peter in Jerusalem. And the two men on the road to Emmaus in the afternoon, as we already mentioned, Jesus appeared to them, although they didn't recognize him at first. Later that night, to the 10 disciples in the upper room without Thomas. And then later, a week later, those same disciples with Thomas, another appearance. By the way, when Jesus appeared with his disciples, he said to them very clearly, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see me have. And they had some broiled fish and ate it. He ate it in their presence. Amazing. A glorified body, but a real body. Another appearance, the seven disciples on the Sea of Galilee when they were fishing, the 11 disciples at some later time on some unknown mountain in Galilee. But 1 Corinthians 15 says there was one time when Jesus appeared to 500 people at the same time. 500. The scripture also says he appeared to James and then of course when he ascended from the Mount of Olives, Acts chapter one says there was a great crowd of people there. We don't know how many people saw him. You can only estimate. But someone said if this testimony from all the people who had witnessed, had seen the visible Christ, if this testimony were given in court and each person was given about 15 minutes to testify, the constant testimony would take for 10 hours every day, almost two weeks. And any lawyer in the world would love that case. In fact, one of the greatest lawyers who uh, taught uh, Jewish prudence and was well known for his ability in arguing cases, Edward Clark said to me, the evidence is conclusive. Over and over again, I've secured the verdict on evidence that wasn't so compelling. And as a lawyer, I accept the gospel evidence unreservedly as the testimony of truthful people who could substantiate the facts and were eyewitnesses of the event. Now you can disbelieve if you want, but there's nothing in the world that has been proved as real as this. You say, but I haven't seen him. Have you seen George Washington? But you believe in him, don't you? Now, if you tell me you don't believe in George Washington, I, I, there's nothing else I can say to you. <laughs> if you don't believe in these people from history where we have clear records of their writings and their testimonies, you say, but we don't have. Yes, we do. <laughs> we have clear writings of his being here and it's beyond a shadow of a doubt. So they saw the visible Christ, but the problem is, we're like the people on the road to Emmaus, Cleopas and his companion, whoever that was. They had given up the ministry. They were quitting on this thing called Christianity. Much like some of you may be contemplating this very day, this might even be your last effort to give Christ a shot because you were so discouraged and so defeated, just like they were. 
And here's the resurrected Christ. They don't even know who he was. Mary Magdalene thought he was the gardener at first, and they thought he's just a visitor. And Jesus said, what kind of things are you talking about as you're walking on the road and you're so depressed? Not knowing it was Jesus, they said, are you a visitor? Have you not heard what has taken place in Jerusalem? And Jesus said, what things? I wonder if he was smirking when he said it. And they said, well, the things about Jesus, we thought he was the Messiah, we thought he was gonna bring in the kingdom, but they crucified him, they killed him and put him in a tomb. And now some women came and told us that the tomb is empty and we're beside ourselves. You can be close to Christ and not see him. You can come to worship with his people and not see him. But Jesus is here today. And you cannot see him with the physical eye, but you have to see him with the eye of faith. And yet he is here. And he is real. And soon Jesus opened up the scriptures. And the Bible says in Luke 24 that he opened up their minds. And they saw. When he broke bread in their presence, they saw it was Jesus and they said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? My prayer for you today is that God will open your mind and heart to understand the scriptures. You've been reading them maybe for a while, but you don't get it. You've heard the stories, but they don't make sense. Oh, my friend, may God open your eyes to see the truth that Jesus lives. And he longs to be your Savior and Lord. So we are encouraged by the vacant tomb. We are encouraged, or should be, by the visible Christ. And thirdly, we should be encouraged by the vibrant disciples. Look at verse 8. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. I like that. Afraid, yet filled with joy. We were told that they were afraid in verse five. And now we're told that they are afraid, but filled with joy. And Jesus, when he met with the women, had to say to them in verse 10, don't be afraid. We're such fickle people. But I do believe that there is something in faith called fear. It's godly fear. And I believe they move from selfish fear that immobilizes you, fear that will overcome you, and keep you away from the Savior, and then there's the fear of God that drives you to him. It's this fear of wonder and amazement that this could be real. And they were so excited and filled with joy. Now how do you reverse disciples discouraged and ready to quit into a church that conquers the world? It has to be based on this wonderful, visible, real appearance of Jesus after his resurrection. You cannot explain the dramatic change of the disciples without it. 
They're willing to die now. And most of the 12 do for the faith. They're willing to live now, to suffer, to proclaim this message, this simple message. You, Peter said, by wicked hands and in consort with wicked people, crucified him. But God raised him from the dead, and he is king and Lord of all. Said to the Jews who killed him and to the Roman government that was complicit, he is king, kill me if you will, but I'll just be resurrected with him. Read church history. And you will at the same time be discouraged because church history, granted, shows the great failures of the church. But the very fact that the church still exists today is because Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell won't stop me. You say, but there are so many hypocrites in the church. They're everywhere. They really are. People who say one thing and believe another. But I love the words of Dawson Trotman, the founder of the Navigators, many years ago, who said, it doesn't bother me when uh, I see that there are counterfeit Christians. He said, have you ever seen a counterfeit $12 bill? No, because there are no real ones. You see counterfeit 10s and 20s and 50s and 100s because there are real ones. The very fact that there are counterfeit Christians and that the devil is trying to make a false church proves the fact that there's a real one. And if you're going to allow some degree of hypocrisy or dishonesty to filter into your thinking, you're gonna have to deny yourself because you, my friend, are not always consistent and honest, right? I'm not saying it's a good thing, I'm saying it's a real thing that there are counterfeits in the church. Jesus even said the wheat and the tares will grow together, but at the last day, they will be sifted and separated. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so if you study the facts and you are objective, my friend, I don't think there's any other conclusion you can come to unless you are already predetermined not to believe. And that is where many people are. I will not have Jesus rule over me. I will not become a Jesus freak. I will not become a religious nut. I will not give my money away. I will not come to, I will not, I will not until you see Jesus. And then you realize all of your anger is because you don't understand. I'm convinced that when people see Jesus with the eyes of faith, they believe. You might be rejecting a false Christ, one made up in your own mind, but you won't reject the real Christ because he is someone who loves you more than you will ever know and died to take your sins away which you cannot remove and offers you eternal life when you will simply believe. 
Oh, love's redeeming work is done. Jesus fought the fight and the battle's won. Death in vain forbids him rise, but Christ has opened paradise. And when you put your faith and trust in Christ, you'll be raised again because he was raised from the dead. It was during, during the Napoleonic Wars when the diminutive emperor was sweeping across Europe and controlling everything that he came across. One of his generals made a surprise attack on a little town called Feldkirk on the Austrian border. The invading army settled on the hilltops around the town. It was surrounded and there was no escape. So the town council got together and said, what should we do? A godly man in their midst said, well, it's Easter. I think we should ring the bells like we always do. We know our weakness, but we do not know God's strength. So they started ringing the bells on Easter Sunday. When the French general, who was leading the troops on the hills around the town, heard the bells, he thought to himself, oh no, the Austrian army must have come in the night. And he ordered all the troops to retreat. And the town was saved. Historic fact. All we have to do is cling to our risen Savior and rejoice in him. And the enemy retreats. And the victory is won. Our discouragement must die in the presence of the one who conquered death. And that is Jesus Christ. I don't promise that you'll never be discouraged because we're still battling in this world with so many broken things, including ourselves. But I, I will submit to you, here is the answer. When you believe in a risen Christ who conquered death, discouragement has to die. And I think if you met Jesus in person today, if you walked out of the auditorium and he met you on your way home, I believe he would probably say something like this to you. I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you will never die. And although you may die physically, you will live forever, eternally. Do you believe this. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts sometimes are disengaged with our belief system. We acknowledge with our mind that something is true and it moves us little. Emotions aren't touched. The will is ignored. But the mind has been filled with facts and we say we agree. That describes so many people in America when they think about Jesus and the resurrection. But today, oh Spirit of God, today, break through. Break through the hard heart and the unbelieving soul and the selfish soul. The soul in bondage to its own lust 
in bondage to its own weakness, which really describes us all, and set us free as we put our faith and trust in Christ. Lord, break through so that people might understand that Jesus is the one he claimed to be, and today he offers peace, life, joy, heaven for all who put their faith and trust in him. Lord, to that soul that is contemplating right now, invite them in, and may they simply pray, Lord, I believe with my mind and heart and soul and will, and I receive you today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.